Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Coronavirus news. South African wine export ban lifted. Rise in online sales in the US and UK. And a one-table restaurant pops up in a Swedish field. And in other news? News on the 2020 vintage. The potential impact of social distancing for port. Lawsuit won in China on fake Bordeaux. And as ever, our wine of the week. Like many in the wine industry, we've been continuing our virtual tastings this week. We did another blind tasting with some friends of ours, uh, virtually. This time, two sparkling wines, which were supplied to us by the panel wine shop in Sonoma. Uh, Not surprisingly, we didn't get where the wines were from, as one was from Slovenia and the other from Portugal. No, that was not on our mind at all. But it's certainly a lot of fun to taste blind the exact same wine as friends who are elsewhere. And we'll definitely continue to do these tastings, won't we, Katie? Yes, definitely. And where did we think that Slovenian wine was from? I think you and I said South Africa. Uh, There was Chile in the mix and as well as... I think California or Cremon. Yeah. From France. Yeah, so Slovenia was not on our minds, but super fun. Uh, also, we watched another uh, episode of the California Wine Institute's webinar series, uh, in which Elaine Chacon Brown interviews an important and well known figure of the wine industry about what's going on in the vineyard or winery. And this week it was uh, Jason Haas of Tablas Creek, who was out in the April sunshine sitting next to Tablas Creek's vineyards in Paso Robles. And there was a lot to talk about because Tablas Creek have been a seminal winery in the development of California wine since the 1990s, uh, driving attention to Paso Robles, bringing in cuttings from the sister winery Chateau de Pocastel of Chateauneuf-du-Pop, and raising awareness of how well Rhone varieties work in California. And it was a real treat because we had a guest uh, speaker, who uh, Bob Lindquist, who actually you know, traveled around in a car with Jason Haas's father, uh, trying to find the perfect place to grow these Rhone varieties. So it was really interesting seeing that intergenerational dynamic. Collaboration, not competition, was the key theme of their conversation, and long may it continue. Exactly. And there were a couple of uh, wines in the tasting. One was the kind of the classic Tablas Creek wine, Esprit de Tablas. But there's also an example of the experimentation taking place at Tablas Creek, because one of the wines that Jason showed was Tablas Creek's Picardin, one of the obscure Chateauneuf white varieties, which took them eight years to successfully import into California. So a lot of effort just for a great variety that no one's ever heard of, or nearly no one. But not only are Tablas Creek making wine from Picardin, but a handful of producers are also making wine from the Tablas Creek cuttings. And so it's just an example of their experimentation, but also how influential they've been on um, wine, wine styles, great varieties and production in California. A lot of people follow their lead. And now on with the news. In these most unsettled and unsettling times, it's no surprise that the impact on the wine industry has been both huge and unpredictable. Last week, we reported that South Africa had reversed its decision to allow wine and other agricultural products to be exported, as it banned transportation within the country altogether. This week, it reversed that decision, and now exports are to be permitted, starting this week on the 1st of May. 
So this came as the South African government lessened the lockdown restrictions from level five to level four, allowing the movement of goods and also of manufacturing. And although the decision to forbid the export of wine was only in effect for a few days rather than the initial five weeks, the stop-start nature of the decision-making has still had a big impact on the South African wine industry, with an estimated 1 billion rand, or $53 million, being lost. In the US, the trend of increased online sales continued with a five-fold increase in sales of alcohol online. Sales figures from March to mid-April saw a 234% increase on last year, while the last two weeks of the period saw them increase by five times. The largest rate of growth has been in spirits, but wine still dominates online sales with a 70% share. In the UK, the rise in online shopping is predicted to continue beyond the lockdown, whenever that happens, mm. with a forecast of growth of 33% in 2020 and to increase another 41% in the next five years. However, this upturn in online sales hasn't compensated for the loss of restaurant and bar sales. Beer in the UK was down 13% and Coors reported a de- decrease of around 8%. So the question is, when they get the chance, will drinkers return to restaurants and bars or stay at home now they're used to it? And a piece of innovation in Sweden, where Linda Carlson and former chef Rasmus Persson opened an outdoor one-table restaurant. The idea came about when Carlson's parents came to her house and she refused to let them in. Instead, she put a table out for them outside and served them through the window. The quote-unquote restaurant has one table in a field with no waiters. The three-course meal is transported to the guests in a basket suspended from a washing line connected to the kitchen window. The restaurant is open all day, but only takes one party per day. All in all, an extreme contrast to Sweden's approach as a whole, which had been far less strict than other countries. And that one party that they accept, they have to be have to live in the same household. You can't have any intermingling. So they're pretty strict on, on who they allow in. And I'm not sure what I think of this concept. Maybe it is a pointer to the future where outdoor eating and drinking is allowed, but not indoor eating and drinking. There's been some discussion about that. Well, and a lot of restaurants are going to have to think outside the box because as we, you know, phase out this reopening, uh, restaurants are obviously are not going to be able to return to normal. They are going to have to have less seating. um, So it'll be interesting to see how others innovate. And um, I saw one restaurateur say that um, partial reopening of restaurants um, would actually be more damaging than Mm -hmm. keeping them closed because having... um, like 50% capacity, but still having to employ staff uh, would actually not be very um, cost efficient. So maybe some restaurants won't reopen even when they have the possibility to do so, even though we're some way away from that, probably. Well, and maybe takeout, you know, will become, will continue to grow and become one of the most important parts of our hospitality industry. I know that people have really gravitated towards it, and maybe that'll continue to be the case. Some news on the 2020 vintage in the Southern Hemisphere, which by now is mostly complete. One trend is that the harvest was earlier than usual this year, three weeks so in Margaret River, Western Australia, while in Chile the season was reported to have been warmer than the historic average, causing the harvest to be two to three weeks early, a month early in the case of Sauvignon Blanc in Casablanca. Likewise in Argentina, the harvest was earlier than usual. 
A second trend is that yields are low, down by 25 to 40% in Margaret River, although South Africa was an exception with a 5% increase on the small 2019 crop. Producers across all these countries are reporting a stellar vintage with ripe, fruity characteristics balanced by fresh acidity and low pH. Wines to look forward to. Harvests in the southern hemisphere have of course been difficult because of the pandemic, though it's possible to easily maintain social distancing in the vineyard. And it's an issue producers in the northern hemisphere may have to face later this year, when their harvest comes around. It could be particularly acute for traditional port producers, as social distancing would preclude the foot treading of grapes for vintage port, according to Adrian Bridge of the Fladgate Partnership. He said they were exploring options on what to do, not wishing to harm foot treaders by having them work so closely in the small, shallow lagares. As a result, the winery is being rapidly mechanized to potentially replace foot treading, although Bridge also warned that 2020 may not be declared a vintage, as he believes foot treading leads to a 2% increase in quality, a small but important variant. Meanwhile, Quinta de Noval have released their 2018 vintage port, their eighth vintage release in a row. In general, a vintage is only declared three times a decade, in part because the wines must be of the highest quality, but also to ensure the market isn't flooded with vintage port. But Quinta de Noval have booked this trend by continuing to annually release vintage port. It's a famous producer which isn't difficult to sell, and the vintage port only accounts for 7% of their production. So small quantities to sell, and all made from the best fruit. Christian Seely, managing director of Quinta de Noval, describes the wine as magnificently ripe, round, and expressive. Well, I'd love to try some of that. Likewise. Retails for about $100 or so, but obviously a wine which will age for a very long time, and it sounds extremely tasty. But let's hope um, 2020 isn't too difficult for the port producers and that they, they can still maintain that really high quality in difficult conditions. <laughs> Last week, the pod reported on how Penfolds had finally and successfully been trademarked in China, an important development in protecting its famous name and potentially other luxury brands and regions in the future. This week, there was more news from China of fraud being successfully fought. The CIVB, the association which represents Bordeaux, won a case against a producer called Penglei Yunkui Chateau in Shandong, which had it accused of violating the Bordeaux trademark. The Chinese producer had been labelling their wines as Bordeaux and advertising them as, quote, directly imported from the region with guaranteed quality. So the Shandong Provincial High People's Court found in Bordeaux's favour and awarded them $71,000 in compensation, which the, Ch- the Chinese producer has to pay. A small amount, but the decision suggests that China is serious about tackling wine fraud. Well, I wonder if combating counterfeit is more important than ever because so many things have gone digital, gone online, and you know that many hackers are, you know, getting into people's emails, and maybe that flows into counterfeiting as well. Maybe maybe there are more opportunities now that everything is going digital for that to exist. Yeah, digital scamming has been an issue during this crisis. Some unsavory people taking advantage of the situation. So yeah, very important that um, wineries protect themselves, protect their name, and we know what out there is real and authentic, and we're not being given fake goods. And now for our wine of the week, 
which comes from the Loire Valley. It's Cabernet Franc, one of my favorite grape varieties, but with a twist. It's made by a famous Muscadet producer, Domaine de la Coup. Muscadet is, of course, a region known for its lean, acidic white wines made from the Melon grape, but here is a Cabernet Franc from the same region. However, it can't be labeled Muscadet, which is a white wine appellation, so instead it's a Vin de France, which doesn't give a direct description of where the wine comes from. So Vin de France is a great way for producers to experiment and work outside the local rules, and winemaker and owner Fred Niget loves to experiment. Indeed, he's led the way in making single soil muscadet, so muscadet from different soil types, to express the terroir of the region. And besides this Cabernet Franc, he also makes Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. What we also love about this wine is the label. So good. In this series of wines, which Domaine de la Coup make from unusual varieties or a slightly different style, uh, they have labels like this one, which come from photos that Fred has taken of stained glass windows in churches across Europe. And this one features a kind of red devil that's really bright, attractive, and eye-catching. And it's also quite the talking point, isn't it, Katie? Why Mm. is that? Well, the keen observer will notice that a certain part of its body is in quite an excitable state. It's funny, the first person who pointed that out to me was female, and you noticed it straight away as well. Indeed. But while we were drinking this wine, it got us talking about how important a label is. It's a lot easier to sell a wine with a memorable label than a boring, forgettable one. Absolutely, and even though we're very knowledgeable about wine, a lot of the time we do buy the wine according to the label. Oh, a lot of the time, yes. Because there's so much out there, and if someone's put that effort to make a good label, then hopefully they'll put some effort to make a good wine Mm. as well. But what did this wine actually taste like, Katie? Well, it was very green uh, when we opened it first, you know, the same night. Uh, It was super green, herbaceous, had that very Cabernet Franc note to it. Uh, The acidity was very high, too, coming from that cool climate. And it's funny because we tasted it again the day after, and it had developed um, many different notes. Like, it was a lot more developed. It felt um, a little bit more meaty than, than the night before. Yeah, it's very interesting. And if you can try a really good wine the day after, it's very interesting to see how it develops. I love it when they get better over a few days of being opened, because then it means you don't have to drink the whole bottle in one night, but you can uh, hold it and see how it develops over the next few days. Yeah, and it's also a real um, assurance of quality, I think, that a wine can hold together um, over the course of a few hours or even a few days. And just to note, it's a 2014 vintage, so it's about five to six years old and still holding good. We're very impressed by its quality and its um, style. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio!